Hello, and welcome back to the Meraki Unbox podcast. It is 2022. Can you believe it, folks? Happy New Year. I don't know where the last two years have gone. It's uh, crazy that we're already in the new year, but we are so excited to have you back. So welcome to another great episode of the podcast today. If you haven't already done so, please go ahead and subscribe to the Meraki Unbox podcast so you can hear the latest and the greatest content. And at Meraki Simon, if you have ideas about the podcast or you want to contribute in a certain way, please, please, please let us know. We've already got some great ideas coming in. So thank you to the listeners for reaching out to us and sharing some ideas. Before we get into it today, I'm, I'm super excited to introduce this guest. So Jen Kirkpatrick has been with Cisco Meraki for almost two years now, and she's the current VP of the Americas. Uh, but before that, uh, she had an eight-year career at Cisco, and prior to that, she was at HP. Um, so at Cisco, she was the senior director of recurring offers and customer lifecycle transformation, and before that, a director of global enterprise software. Um, she has had 20-plus years of leadership experience within the tech industry. This woman is no joke, and, and I can't wait to dive into it today with her. Um, Jen would say that she identifies as kind of the go-to problem solver, and she's consistently able to work within teams and across cross-functionally in different business units to cultivate desired results, to enhance revenue. Um, she would describe herself also as kind of focusing on that bigger picture. So I really can't wait to dive in today, understand her methodology, figure out how she works. Um, a little bit more personal about Jen, she resides in Cleveland, Ohio. Shout out to Cleveland. That is the territory I cover at Cisco Meraki. Let's go with her husband and her two daughters. Without further ado, hi, Jen. How are you? Good. How are you, Sammy? I'm so good. Uh, I, I should say aloha because I'm just getting back from a week of PTO in Hawaii. So I'm still oh, kind of on island time. Sounds absolutely wonderful. I'm a little jealous. It, it was wonderful, but I've got a lot of work to do left in H1. So back to the ground running. Um, but welcome to the podcast, Jen. And I also want to tell our listeners something that I discovered about you that I loved. You you are a fish fan, right? The band Fish? I am a fish fan. That's actually pretty funny, Sammy. Yeah, I uh, followed fish all through college with um, what we consider my college tribe, right? Uh, the group that I hung out with that became lifelong friends. And uh, several years after college, uh, continued to do the the summer tours and the New Year's Eve tours and um any other time that I could get away, that was my vacation early on in life in my 20s. So I've probably seen about 80 concerts. Oh, uh, if God. you consider that, you know, sometimes when you went to their big shows, the, the concerts would be two to four in the afternoon and, and then another one from, you know, eight to midnight. I would consider that two shows. So <laughs> two and one. That's amazing. And for those listeners out there who've never heard, so Fish is spelled P H I S H. And they're a jam band. And I know this because I told one of the directors I was going to their show. My buddy dragged me along. It was his 70th show. And he said, you got to tell Jen. She's a total fish head. She loves that band. So that's that's how we made that connection. What's awesome about it now, Sammy, is it's just like my, my college friends and I, we don't see each other very much anymore. Uh, but every few years, we'll get together and go and it uh, to one show in the summer or something at an outdoor amphitheater. And it's just funny to watch the age group of the cars change. It used to be that none of us could afford a nice car. And then all of a sudden they were nice cars and then they were minivans because we all had kids. Uh, and now they're the uh, midlife crisis cars. So it's just oh, funny to watch the fish families grow up together. Grow up too. <laughs> I love it. When I told you after the show, I pinged you. I, I I'm a big music buff. I love going to live shows. I love live music. I will tell you, it was the nicest group of fans that I've ever been within a crowd. It, it like blew me away. I was like, what's going on here? Everyone was silly nice. They are silly nice. They are silly. Yeah. Nice. So wonderful. I'm glad you enjoyed your very first fish experience. That's awesome. Well, Good. I had to share that with our listeners. So go go take a listen if you haven't heard of them. Um, so let's get into the fun part. And while you're here, we want to hear all about you, Jen, and we want to learn your story. So take us back to the beginning. I like to start with this question. Tell us your story. How did you get into technology? 
That's a great question. And it's actually kind of a funny story because um, while I was in college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I, I kind of defaulted to business. Um, I got through my second semester into my second semester of junior year and I decided, man, this business is just not for me. But at that point, my counselor was like, hey, Jen, you've, you've kind of got enough credits to get a minor in business. Why would you just leave business? And I'm like, because I want to be a lawyer. I think I'm going to go to poli sci. I really love poli sci. Yeah, okay, but you really already have enough credits. You really should stick this out. Um, no, 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 I'm going to go to poli sci. So I switched majors, went into political science, got a sociology of law minor and a business minor because they did win that argument with me. Uh, and my dad was very adamant that I stay and, and learn a little bit more about business. Um, but uh, I ended up graduating with political science and I was studying for my LSATs uh, over the summer. And um, for those of you who have teenage kids or college age kids, um, you know what this sounds like. My parents basically said, hey, you've been, you've been graduated for about three months. You really need to get a job. Uh, we're about to hand you your car insurance, and we think you might want to, you know, contribute to the household. So go get a job. Okay, I'll get a job. Uh, I was playing softball in a co-ed league at the time, and uh, one of my softball co uh, colleagues said, hey, you should come be a receptionist at this technology firm, um, Sarcom. It was a partner at the time. They've since been bought by PC Mall and I think, um, you know, kind of no longer exist. But um, said, come be the receptionist from one to four. Being the college uh, graduate that I was, I'm like, one to four rocks, that's awesome. I can totally sleep in, I'll wake up, study for my LSATs in the morning, go be the receptionist, I don't have to work too hard and I'll make some money to, to uh, you know, pay the bills that my parents were giving me. Well, lo and behold, and for those of you who are in their 20s and 30s, um, you may have heard of this thing called the Y2K. It was the Y2K era and they needed um, account managers so bad, kind of like the world we're in right now where we can't hire enough people um, because uh, of the great resignation, right? But um, they needed account managers, they needed salespeople so badly. And I jumped in and I said, sure, I'll do this. Um, you know, I'll work, I'll work about 30 hours a week and just do part-time as a junior account manager and fell in love. I fell in love with technology. I fell in love with Cisco. Um, Cisco at the time was one of the largest companies globally. Uh, they were, you know, hundred and some dollars a, a, a share for their stock. And they were giving stock for every Catalyst 5000 that was sold at the time. So I fell in love with Cisco in general because it was just, it was an awesome uh, way to get partners to want to sell the technology. And I had a bunch of wonderful engineers that took me in and taught me about uh, servers and taught me about what a data center was and what it meant to be, um, you know, the different levels of data center security and compliance and uh, taught me about networking and um, taught me about Microsoft was just becoming a thing at the time, right? We were launching Microsoft. I'm totally aging myself, by the way, Sammy, by saying all this stuff. But Windows 95 was launching and it was just a great time to be in technology. Uh, but yeah. the world was about to end because everybody was so reliant on technology and Y2K was coming and we had to get out there. And so it was it was awesome. It was learning, but it was um, it, 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 the momentum of technology was increasing. And I, I, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with it and never went to law school. I stayed wow. in ever since then. I know. Sometimes that happens, right? Life just gets in the way of our plans. It does. It does. And and it all turned out fantastic. It sure did. I would say so. You're, you're not doing half bad. Okay. So <laughs> that's how you fell in love with Cisco. So from, from um, IC Mall, you kind of got into the, the partner community and then you found, about, found out about Cisco. So were you hired onto Cisco as an AM? Like how, what was that transition? And then eventually how did you get to Meraki? What is that story? Yeah. So actually, no, it was several years later. It was almost um, it was probably a good 11, 12 years later before I got into Cisco. I ended up, um, I was in sales for about four or five years right out of 
uh, college at, at SARCOM, which got bought by PC Mall. And um, they went through some divestitures, some growth, some uh, splitting up of the company. And I ended up saying, hey, I don't, I don't know about this sales thing, this whole high risk, high reward thing. Maybe I'll go into be a more um, salary focused. And I jumped into project management and I got PMP certified, which was way out of my comfort zone. It took me super far out of my comfort zone. And um, after becoming, after doing that for about two years, and man, I was really good at it. I was really good at telling people what to do uh, and really controlling everything. I think it goes to my control issues, but, uh, <laughs> but as a project manager, I learned so much about um, having to get different business groups to work together, creating a single vision, having um, a team that becomes a team, even though they're not forced to be a team, they want to be a team. And so it was a really great experience, but I missed the hunt. I missed sales. I missed working with customers to solve problems. Um, and I missed, um, I missed the high risk, high reward part of sales, right? And so I jumped back into sales at uh, a variety of different technology companies along the way. I worked for an application development company because SharePoint was just starting to be a thing. It was just launching. Um, I worked for a company called Novell um, that, you know, was was the big um, company before Microsoft. Uh, I worked then moved into Hewlett Packard. Uh, I did stay at home for about two and a half years as well. I had two children, uh, two girls, and it was awesome. But I realized I was a better mom working, and my husband then decided he wanted to stay home. So it was a wonderful role reversal, if you will, uh, which wasn't very popular 20 years ago. Um, and so um, I, I did all of that and then was rising up the ranks at Hewlett-Packard. And I got a call from a, a local Cleveland friend who worked at Cisco and said, hey, we think you should come to Cisco. We have an opening for a services salesperson. I was like, oh man, you know, like I feel like that's going backwards in my career. I don't know if I want to do that. Um, I'm I'm a client executive, which would be the equivalent of um, you know owning two or three large accounts and all the product and portfolio that is being sold within that previous that within Hewlett Packard. Uh, I don't know if I want to go back and just be an overlay as a services rep. I, I felt like it was going backwards in my career. Um, but something in my gut, right? Something in my gut said, this is a good move for you. So I thought long and hard about it. Um, and I made the jump. And what really, really pushed me over the edge from that decision was how the companies reacted when I told them I was on the fence and I didn't know if I wanted to go. Um, one company said, hey, you do what's right for you. You're not going to burn any bridges. We appreciate it. And the other company said, you need to be negotiating harder. You need to be getting more money from both companies. You have both companies wanting you. And I thought, man, I really want to go to the company that told me what to do what's good for my family. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's the reason I jumped over to Cisco uh, was because of how they reacted to the negotiation process and, and the outcome there and jumped over as an individual contributor uh, in the services side, and I sold Cisco services for a couple years, um, and then, and then just started doing what feels like Sammy. I've always been on the leading edge of change within Cisco, transformational change. Um, for example, I, I um, jumped into something called our as a service team or a strategic engagement team. So when customers wanted to do things with Cisco as a service. Um, and this was before, you know, Meraki was big and before as a service was a thing out there, customers would come and say, we want to, we want to buy from you as a resource unit. We want your hardware, your software, your services all combined into one, let's call it a SKU, but they call it a resource unit. And we want to buy per month, right? Based on consumption. And that was really hard, but I learned a ton there. Uh, did that for a couple of years, then ran our software team uh, and was doing enterprise agreements at Cisco before enterprise agreements were cool and mainstream, right? Yeah. And then um, in the middle of learning about enterprise agreements, realized that, hey, we really weren't focusing on how our customers were using the software. We were really focusing on the bundle, 
the ROI of the finances associated with that and not how they were using it, how they were adopting it. Um, and so started up a, a little bit of a, a hubbub, if you will, uh, across um, Cisco about adoption and caught the eye of our corporate headquarters, who at the time was just starting to launch what we now know as our CX organization. And they asked me to come work at corporate and be the sales um, single, the sales kind of influence into how CX was building their adoption models. And so I, I took that jump as well, which then took me out of sales into strategy and planning and operations. And from there, the Meraki job opened up and I was, I was in corporate for about two years. And I have to tell you, it, I would not change a thing, but it scared the bejesus out of me um, to actually go work in corporate um, and uh, um, learn something new. I got out of my comfort zone again, right? Right. Um, when the Meraki job opened up, I thought really long and hard about it because what what really attracted me to come to Meraki was the fact that it was the culmination of almost everything that I have been doing for the past 10 years at, or eight years at Cisco, software, services, thinking about things differently, business outcomes, focused on how our customers are consuming, bringing the solutions to them. It was just, it literally was like, Oh my God, Jen, if there was a job created for you, it was this, right? As the next step in your career. And so it just felt like bringing all the things I've been working on to, to um, a single sales motion. And I just fell in love with the, the you know, concept, the methodology, the values, the, the go-to-market, everything that has to do with Meraki. Wow, that's such a cool story, Jen. I did not know that and how in depth you were with so many different parts of the business at Cisco and how it kind of all culminated to the fact that this job was almost made for you, it sounds like. In my mind, it was, right? <laughs> sure, I like it. Well, and I think that speaks to a point. I think a lot of listeners out there, whether you're Cisco, whether you're Meraki, you might not be at either company, but you go for jobs and you don't get it and you're sitting there scratching your head like, what could I have done better? You know, why, why not me this time? And, and every leader I've talked to said, there's something bigger and better around the corner, stay the course. Right. Um, and I think this speaks to that. Yeah. And, and the other thing that, as I reflect back on my career, um, what I realized is I always, I didn't always move forward with every leap, right? A lot of my job movement was lateral or in my mind, you know, going coming from Hewlett Packard to a services individual contributor, I I felt like I was backwards. But had I not done that, I wouldn't be where I was today, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I I probably wasn't going backwards. It just to me felt like I had moved out of services at Hewlett Packard. I had gotten to be the client director, right? I had all the portfolio. I wasn't just a specialist. I owned it all. And then coming back into being, you know, just a, a portion of the solution again, um, to me felt like I was going backwards. But it it ended up being the most amazing move of my career. It was all about taking a chance and getting out of my comfort zone. Um, and that leap of faith to have confidence in myself that I can continue to grow, right? I can continue to grow. And so, you know, for almost five years, my title may have changed, but I didn't move up or down. Mm. I was just afraid forever. But the experiences that I gained within those different moves were, were just unbelievable to be able to give me the foundation to get the next promotion, right? Because having that cross-functional diversity in my background, I was able to come at problem solving from multiple different angles and not just what I've known, you know, not just one angle because I hadn't moved out of my comfort zone. Yeah. That's such an important call out. And I think for listeners, career pathing is not always linear, right? You're going to go up, down, backwards, sideways before you get to where you're supposed to go. And all of it, you're going to take tools along with you on your tool belt that are going to make you that much of a better candidate for when the right job does come along, right? Um, Thank you for calling that out. 100%. 100%. 
So let's kind of transition and talk about who you are as a leader. And one of my favorite things about this podcast and doing this podcast, it's almost been a year now, January will be a year um, since my first episode, which is so cool. It is um, interviewing amazing leaders in our organization. And I want to understand from your perspective, you know, what would you say as a leader is your greatest strength? And how did you work over the last, you know, 20 plus years you've had of leadership experience to cultivate the brand you have? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a hard question. Cause for, for me, it's hard to boil it down to a single greatest strength. And I don't mean that to sound like arrogant, like, oh my God, I'm the greatest leader out there. Right. Um, cause I'm not, I, I know that I still have a lot to learn. Um, and I, I think every leader should come at leadership as continuous improvement, right? How, how can I continuously get better? But if I have to think about what's made me successful, um, over the last several years is learning, maybe, maybe bringing everything in my tool belt that I've learned from different leaders and making sure that. I'm continuously improving upon those concepts. So let me give you an example. Uh, when I first became a people leader, and I remember this so vividly, I was six months into a, being a people leader. I was working probably what felt like 17 hours a day, right? I was busting my butt. I was always on the phone. I was always on with my individual, you know, the people that worked for me. Um, I was constantly diving in and getting, you know, rolling up my sleeves and getting in. And I'm thinking, man, I'm doing an awesome job. And my manager calls me aside one day and he says, listen, you can't do your team's job for them. And you have to know that you have to let them fail. Number one, you have to know just because it's not the way you would do it doesn't mean it's wrong. And you cannot have um, unrealistic expectations because just because you're the type of person that can't go to bed until everything on your checklist is marked off doesn't mean that's the way everybody else works. You have mm -hmm. to learn your team and you have to um, appreciate and um, allow them to build on their own style as well as their own successes and failures. Right. So I thought that was fantastic. And I carried that nugget with me forever that that I can't do people's jobs for them. Not that I'm that amazing. Right. That I that I have the ability to do everybody's job, but I have an opinion of how things should be done. And my opinion isn't always the right way. And so part of what I learned from that experience was to be humble enough and, and honest enough to say, how are you going to approach this? And man, your way may be 100% better than what I had in mind. Um, and be okay with that, right? Yeah. Be okay with the fact that my ideas are not the end-all be-all, right? My ideas, um, my ideas are there to get people creatively thinking as a leader. Um, but we may not come out of a solution with what I thought we were going to do. And that's okay, right? Totally. And that's okay. And, I, and it's celebrated and it's amazing. Um, another thing that I learned was authenticity. Um, I may not be the most polished. I may not be the most, uh, the smartest person in the room. Matter of fact, as a leader, I really don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I want to surround myself with people who are amazing, um, and help move the whole thing together, but just be yourself, right? Be 100% yourself because people can totally tell when you're not. When you're trying to be someone you're not, um, and and so I may not always have the right words, but that's okay because I know who I am, and I know how to have some fun, and I know how to make fun of myself, and I know, um, you know, I know how to bring the energy when I need to, and I know how to be serious, and I know when it's time to roll up my sleeves, and I know when it's time to walk away and let someone else be empowered to lead, yeah. right? And so be authentic and be. Uh, yourself, have fun in everything you're doing, because I am so 100% passionate and a believer in the fact that if you're not having fun, you're not going to be good at it. If mm. you wake up every morning and hate your job, it's truly a job. 
I wake up every morning, except Mondays every once in a while. I'll tell, I'll be honest. I'll tell you Monday mornings really are like, oh, I got to get up and have two cups of coffee on Monday. But um, I do wake up excited to go to work. I love my job. I love what I'm doing. Um, and I think you can tell the people who love what they're doing versus the people who are like, I'm just here to get the paycheck. Yeah. Yep. So, and so I think I, I try to bring those philosophies um, into everything I do from a leadership perspective. I'll give you one other story and I'm, I'm sorry, I know I'm talking a lot, but I had another leader who taught me to get out of my comfort zone in a way that I never thought um, I could, right? He, he taught me to not report the news, but to actually make the news, right? Be the one who's making the news. Be the one who's analyzing the news and saying this is right or wrong. Don't just be the one reporting the news. And what I learned from that was how much, how can I be more proactive? How can I actually be the one executing? How can we be the ones that's saying, okay, we made our number or we didn't make our number, but why didn't we? And what are we going to do next quarter to, to do better, right? So it's not just we didn't do it or we did do it, but it's the why, the how, um, and the plan associated with that. So a single question isn't always a single question, right? And so I think those were good things. And what I learned from um, all of these leaders is that you you may be petrified to go into a situation, but don't, but just be confident, right? Be confident that you can do it. And even if it's uncomfortable, you're going to learn, right? Because yeah. that, that taught me how to do that, right? It taught me how to go and be be the news, analyze the news and bring all the information that would make me that next level leader instead of just being the one saying the 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 basic facts of what we did, right? right. Reporting the news. Yeah. And so that was good. Right. You learned how to differentiate. That's how you're standing out, right? That's a that's such a good call out. Don't report the news, create the news. That is that resonates with every single person listening. And I think something that each of us can take along is how do we step into our careers, our roles, and have a more proactive role? Because to your point, that's that's how you grew and got outside your comfort zone and pushed yourself to places that you didn't even think were possible. Correct. So thank you for sharing that tidbit. That's really cool. You know, Jen, you touched on something just now where you said, you know, I don't need to know everything, but have the confidence, have the confidence to step in the room, to have the conversations. Where did you find that confidence? Where did you find that belief in yourself, even if you didn't know the answer to show up? Because I think that's hard for some folks. It is. It is. And what I'll tell you is that it doesn't there's not a light switch that you just flip one day and say, okay, I'm, I'm super confident, right? Uh, that doesn't happen. Um, I remember my first few customer meetings, I would go with a senior leader. Um, I would let, I would let them sit at the table. And I, if there's only four seats, I would grab a seat and sit in the second row behind them. Right. And just be in the room and just be in the room. Um, but over time, you know, reading different books. I read, um, you know, the Sheryl Sandberg when she first came out with her books around female leadership and, and things like that. A lot of that resonated so much with me around finding your own seat at the table, being, feel like you should be there. And I started to, to um, not be afraid to ask the questions. Um, even though, you know, my first few years out of school, I kept thinking, oh my God, nobody else has this question. If I ask this question, I'm gonna sound so dumb. Um, and then I started to ask the questions and I started to sit at the table and I started to have the command of the room when I walked in and little by little, you realize that, um, there are no dumb questions. There is someone else in the room has that has that question. Most of the time when I was asking a question, people didn't have the answers, um, and so little by little, you just start to become confident. But when I when I talk to females graduating college, when I talk to females in high school, I want them to start um, getting that confidence earlier on in life. I mean, I was in my mid thirties till I felt confident enough to uh, sit next to a CIO, right? Confident yep. enough to walk into a room and say, okay, 
I got this meeting. Even if I'm not 100% prepared, I know enough and I'm confident enough in me that I can say I don't know, right? And not feel like I'm a fail, and I feel like I'm failing. Um, and and so I want I want people to find that confidence in high school, in grade school. I want them to know that you don't have to wait till your mid 30s and, and early 40s to find that confidence. You should find it in high school and walk into the, your career. Um, I, I wouldn't say there's a difference between confidence and entitlement too, right? Sure. Yep. You, you shouldn't, you know, don't be entitled. You have to earn things, but at the same time, be confident enough to ask, be confident enough to ask um, and move forward. And it just comes with time and it comes with trial and error uh, and it comes with um, being successful and then picking yourself back up when you fail and knowing this didn't define me, right? This failure didn't define me. It taught me. Well, on that note, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I think talking about, and I'm putting failure in like air quotes right now, because I don't think there is such a thing as failure. I think it's, you know, first attempt and learning, right? You're really figuring yourself out and you're learning lessons. Could you share with us maybe a time in your career where at the time you felt like you experienced a failure, but now looking back at it, you realize that was a huge learning lesson for me. Does anything come to mind for you? It does actually, it does. Um, both in leadership and, and execution of a program, right? I will tell you that um, I was asked to, at one point in time in my career to start up a team on a subject I didn't know anything about. Uh, and I was super confident I could do it. And um, to this day, absolutely don't disagree with that confidence. But what I didn't do was take the time to step back and bring in the experts to say, how do we set this team up correctly? How I didn't know enough about the subject that we were setting the team up to set the team up for success. Um, we, I, we would get together and I didn't hire subject matter experts. I hired um, people who were eager and passionate to do the job, but together we didn't know what we didn't know. Um, and so we could have, we should have gone out and we should have grabbed different subject matter, different subject matter experts to come in and say, this is what a successful team that is approaching the subject would look like. This is what uh, an execution plan looks like. This is the data and the telemetry that you need to be successful. We kind of created it as we went. And ultimately what happened is we had to disband the team and, and push those members back into um, different sales organizations within the company because we weren't successful. We, we didn't um, have the, the right data points. We didn't have the right telemetry to write the, make the right decisions. Uh, and we weren't set up for execution. Uh, and that's squarely on me as, as a leader. I, I didn't set us up for success. And so what I learned from that was around educating myself. Again, I don't need to be the smartest person. I didn't need to be the subject matter expert, but I did need to have the resources that um, I shouldn't have dove in as fast as we did, right? We should have take, we should have slowed down to go faster. We should have went and got the right people that had done this before and could guide us along the way and give us the advice that we need instead of being um, so gung-ho thinking we can do this on our own. And so I learned that um, ask for help, right? I learned to ask for help from there. I learned to, to slow down, to speed up. Um, and I learned to analyze the situation to be able to bring the right resources in um, and admit when I'm over my head. That doesn't make me less of a leader, right? I think it makes me a stronger leader. But at the time, I it, I, I thought it, everybody would judge me, right? Yes. Um, yes. So I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know, and um, I learned. And uh, now I I ask for help a lot. <laughs> well, you, you've got a big job, but I think you know men men and women alike. There's a, a stigma around asking for help, right? We we're we're afraid we're going to come off weak, or that we don't know something, or that we're not the right person for the job or the right fit. When in reality, I think the strongest leaders and something actually incredibly vulnerable to do is to ask for help when you need it. That is the sign of a strong leader. Exactly. 
exactly. And I am appreciative when my teammates ask for help, right? I'm appreciative when, um, when in, you know, when individual, individual contributors ask for help um, because I think it's a sign of greatness to your point, right? So. Absolutely. And we have such a good team and we have such a big team and Milwaukee and Cisco combined, the amount of resources that we have and people who will drop things to help you is incredible. And I think it's something really special about our culture. So take advantage of it. 100%. 100%. Yeah. So kind of as we transition here and we talk about your role as VP of sales for the Americas and what you've taken and learned at, at Cisco and HP and brought over to Milwaukee, what falls under your umbrella. So for those listeners out there who are like, what the heck does a VP of sales do? So what are you responsible for? You know, what's your revenue number? If you can share that with us, Jen, that you're driving. Um, I'd like to understand your role a little bit better. Sure. 100%. Um, so as far as let's start with the revenue number, cause that's simple. Um, we are driving, well, let's, let's start with a bookings number. Okay. So we are driving bookings of uh, targeting, I set the I set the uh, challenge for the team this year at about two point eight billion dollars. That's not our quota, but but that's the challenge. That's what I think we can do. Um, but I want to be just really clear: it's not me driving that. It's the entire Meraki Americas team that holds and shares the responsibility for driving that stretch number. Right. Um, this year, like I said, we're we're striving towards two point eight billion dollars, which is a very large number. Um, and it's an amazingly huge growth from last year as well. And I know those are very legal and technical terms that uh, amazingly huge. Right. But um, it, it would it's a lofty, lofty, uh, ambitious number. But I but I 100 percent confidence um, in this team and the momentum that we're seeing out there. So ultimately, um, my job is, you know, to take every individual contributor inside of the Americas, uh, whether that's the $1 million quota holders or the $60 million quota holders or the partner teams or the service provider teams, the engineering teams, um, the leadership teams that we have across all the different managers, and create a collective vision that we all have on how we're going to execute to get to that number, right? What do we need to do to get to that stretch goal? Um, and I think the philosophy that Meraki has and the value that we hold core to who we are of everybody in just helps us as leaders do that job, right? Um, I personally am responsible for ensuring that every single person in the Americas can do their job, that there is no obstacle in front of them. I'm responsible for removing obstacles, right? Uh, for removing barriers. Um, sometimes that comes in the form of motivation, right? We do a lot of all hands calls, um, which I, I'm kind of silly on, I think. I think um, I, you know, we throw out goals, we throw out challenges, we throw out fun things that my partner and I, Tim, need to do, bets if you guys hit numbers, um, things like that. But sometimes it comes in the form of creating a program. So we do a lot of programs with our teams around contests, around getting you install base, getting, you know, the Meraki Americas teams install bases, um, target opportunities, areas that we think that, that there's success in. Uh, it comes in the form of listening, right? Listening to everybody on the team to say what's working and what's not working and thinking about how we can solve what's not working and how we can accelerate and expand and grow what is working. Uh, this leadership job comes in the uh, form of uh, managing an OPEX number, making sure that we're not going over budget or and that we're utilizing our budget to the right way, um, having the most optimized hiring plan. So um, this year, you know, we made a lot of changes uh, inside of the Americas. We hired more people. We um, re-optimized some of our hubs. Uh, we moved some people around. So making sure that we're, we're, we're leveraging the dollars that we have to run this business to the most optimized way. Um, 
this leadership comes in the form of advocating for this team across the bigger Cisco, right? Within Meraki globally, we have 890 people approximately. And you know, Cisco itself is 70,000 people. So thinking about uh, how do we make sure that, you know, all 69,000 people that are not Moroccans in sales know what's happening inside of Meraki, know what they can sell, right? Can, can you imagine if we had 70,000 people focused on selling Meraki? How great is that? In the Americas alone, because I focus on the Americas, there's about 7,000 sellers. And so my job comes in the terms, uh, in the form of advocating for Meraki inside of um, the Greater Americas leadership team. And then making sure that I'm meeting with customers, I'm meeting with partners, I'm understanding what's happening on the street, I'm understanding what's happening in our individual contributors' worlds so that that um, we can just hit the mark with them, right? Um, and I'll be honest, Sammy, sometimes my job is like, just get out of the way and let the teams do their job, right? Because you guys are, the Meraki team is pretty darn good at their jobs. And so sometimes it's it's just like, hey, Jen, back off, let me do my job, got it. Go do it. Yeah. Right. Just, I'm right here. Right. So. Yeah. Hey, preaching in the choir. The Rocky sales team is the best in the biz. But okay, <laughs> let me go back to this. 2.8 billion. She didn't say million, billion. Jen, that's a big number. And I, I've got to assume there is a fair amount of stress associated with what you do, right? Like sales in general is stressful and it, you know, being responsible or, or, you know, it's higher than what our goal is, but you're aiming for this 2.8 billion. How do you manage the stress when you feel it? I mean, over your career, what tools and tactics have you implored to really keep yourself calm in moments that are extremely high stress? Because I'm sure you experience them. Yeah, I would, I would say there's definitely high stress, but again, I'm going to go back to, if you're having fun in your job, um, you can handle anything because you love what you do, right? So that's that's foundational. Um, I will tell you that I work out at Orange Theory uh, probably three to four times a week, sometimes five if it's really a crisis, but you have to make time for that. You have to find what um, de-stresses you, what, what takes you away from what you're doing, the downtime. Um, there used to be, as I was growing up in the world, the whole, uh, in the world of technology, the whole premise of work-life balance. Uh, and I truly don't believe in that. I believe in work-life integration because I remember driving my girls to different practices on con calls, right? Uh, I, re I remember, um, you know, sitting in the parking lot of one of their volleyball practices doing a conference call because I was the carpool mom. Um, so I think there's work-life integration. And so you have to think about, um, how do you remove yourself from work-life integration sometimes and just turn it off? That helps. But I that for me is my hour at Orange Theory during the week. Uh, I will also tell you that I take a lot of, uh, take a lot of baths. I really believe in the bath. I think yeah. it is. You can't take technology into the bathtub. So, uh, I mean, you can, but you shouldn't. Um, uh, so I believe in in taking a good book. And I read a lot, and I read a lot to escape, right? I don't read a lot of um, – I love podcasts for self-help. Like if I'm getting on – going on a walk, I'll put on a podcast. I was telling Simon earlier that I absolutely have listened to almost every Meraki Unboxed on walks. Uh, but I, I read a lot of escape novels, just fun novels that that take my mind to a different world, um, that take my mind to, you know, wine country and falling in love or John Grisham uh, legal, you know, drama or um, James Patterson. I love, you know, those series. So I read a lot of those and I'll just grab grab a bath and my family knows when mom's in the bathtub, please don't bother her. Right. Um, not disturb. Yeah. Do not disturb is exactly right. Um, and then I, I will tell you to find your tribe, right? For stress for me, sometimes you need to let it out. Sometimes you need to, to, to vent. You have to find your trusted tribe to vent to. Um, because I, I firmly believe the minute you give your problems a voice, 
they become less of a problem, mm -hmm. right? So uh, if you hold them in, they have power over you and you get more stress. The minute you put them out in the ether, they're not, they're not as bad once you can say them out loud. Uh, that's not true for everything, but it, for, for the majority of the work things, it is. And so have the person that you can vent to, have the person that you can call and say, okay, don't say a word. I just need to scream and yell and vent about this. And then I'm going to be done. And we're never going to talk about it again. Mm -hmm. um, I have that person, right? Um, and then you have your friends. I have, you have to have your friends and family that you can just go not think about work, not think about the $2.8 billion number, right? Not think just go talk about the latest, you know, Netflix series you're watching or whatever it might be and just have fun. Yeah. Real housewives for me. I used to call it my guilty pleasure and now I'm just like, no, I just love it. You know, bravo, it's bravo, right? You do where you just go and turn off your brain, whatever that is for you. So I'm hearing yeah. have your tribe, uh, work out that that's something for me too, Jen, non-negotiable four or five days a week. I got to do it. And, you know, say your problems out loud sometimes to a safe circle of people and they might not be as scary, right? Have that trusted advisor that you can go to and kind of bounce things off of. Yeah. 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 I mean, sometimes it doesn't even need to be an advisor, Sammy. It's just someone who needs to listen that you trust. Yeah. Right? That you just want to, um, and that may not sound very professional, but we all do it as human beings. You need to have your that person, right? I, I go back to friends or Grey's Anatomy. Who's your person? Who's your tribe? Um, that you can just call and say, I need to vent. This isn't going to make sense. I don't know. Just, you, you just have to listen. <laughs> don't try and solve it. Just listen. Just uh, listen. That's yeah. all we need. I, I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to be conscious of your time. So I have a, a couple more questions I want to ask you. This has been such a fun conversation though, and you are very genuine and real. And I knew this was going to be a good episode. I oh. want to highlight uh, one of our arrows for a second and something that you're deeply passionate about. I see you posting about it all the time on LinkedIn. You're talking about it. And that's one of our incredible arrows at Meraki, which is called Meraki Gives. And you are one of the executive sponsors. So I want to give you a chance to kind of highlight this employee resource group that we have, kind of say what it means to you and maybe talk about some of the the causes that you're, that you're passionate about. Yeah, I would say that... Um... You know, Meraki Gives is what Meraki Gives says in the name, right? It's all about giving back. It's all about giving. Um, and I am passionate about it because I am so blessed as a human, right? I'm so blessed as a mom, as a wife. Um, I have my health. My family has my health, has their health right now. Like um, I have a wonderful job for an amazing company. Uh, an amazing company within an amazing company too, right? So I, you know, there we there's just the blessings in abundance about what's truly important in life. And I feel like if you are an individual who realizes how blessed you truly are, um, you have a responsibility to give back, right? Give back um, to the people who are having hardships. And whether that's homelessness, whether that's, um, uh, you know, lack of ability to get all of the food they need, whether that is wh whatever that that hardship might be in a person's world. And I'm not saying that we don't have hardships because we do every single one of us. You know, my favorite thing in the world is that you never know, I shouldn't say my favorite thing, but one of the things that I try to live by is you never know what's happening in someone in, in another person's life. So stop, stop just treat people kindly, right? Just be kind because you never know the problems that happen behind the facade of um, a person's, you know, smile. So, so be kind, but I, I feel as if we have a responsibility to get back because we work at this amazing organization. And I think what Meraki Gives does is it continues to remind people of that. It continues to remind people um, of the of the ability to give back, but we're all so busy, Sammy. We are all so busy in our worlds, in our careers, in our families, in our lives, and, and making sure we're not stressed, right? And doing the things that, that help us not be stressed. And so sometimes it's hard to know, what am I passionate about to give back? I have the desire to, I want to, but I don't know what I could be doing. I don't know what's out there. I don't, and I don't have the time to do all of the research. And so what Meraki Gives does is it gives people options on what 
they could be passionate about, right? What are the things that they could be doing to give back? So uh, for example, this past November, we did two big ones. We did Movember, right? Which focuses on all of the men's health, men's health awareness, where everybody grew a mustache. Some people should not have grown mustaches that did, but they were hysterical and they were awesome. And it was such a fun thing um, to be able to see the the portraits of everybody. Even I grew a mustache uh, visual um, digitally, right? I grew a mustache digitally. So it was out there. And, um, and it really did raise awareness on men's health. And so giving back in that fashion didn't cost a lot. It cost time right? Cost awareness. You could give to the men's health organization. And I know that they did raise a lot of money to go towards men's uh, health awareness. Um, but at the same time, it was participating in the activity uh, with your coworkers and learning and, and being aware of what, you know, what's out there. And then Covenant House, which is near and dear to my heart, uh, as, as for the last six years, I've actually slept out with um, the intention of raising awareness around youth homelessness. And when we say youth, we're really focused on those teens who have um, who have kind of graduated out of foster care. And at 18, I know I wasn't ready to be an adult yet. I wasn't ready to go uh, live my life to the fullest. Uh, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so what, what it really focuses on uh, in Covenant House is the ability to take the 17 through 22, 23-year-olds that are facing homelessness of, of which there are millions and millions and millions of um, that age group that, that age out of foster care and don't have a place to go or are kicked out of their homes at 16 and 17 because of their, their sexual, you know, their sexuality. They, they um, you know, belong to the LBGTQ um, uh, community and, and their parents don't accept it. And so they kick them out or divorce or step parents. I mean, the stories I've heard are just so awful and trying to, to keep those, those children safe um, and out of the, you know, the sex trafficking that, that, it, that happens out there um, and off of the street and out of the adult shelters and in a safe community. And so Covenant House is something, and I could probably talk for the next hour and a half about Covenant House and all the stories, but um, it's something I'm truly passionate about, and which was why I really love Meraki Gives. But what Meraki Gives does is about every month uh, across the three geos, they come up with different um, areas for people to focus. And the goal is to get uh, every employee to use the 40 hours of time to give that we have uh, allocated to us at Cisco and here at Meraki so that we are giving back because, yeah, you know, we have a responsibility to do that. Absolutely. And I think, Jen, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they even upped at Cisco to 80 hours, right, that they're giving Cisco employees now. I know at the end of this year it is 80 hours. Is yeah. it? Okay. Awesome. I don't know if it continues into next year, but it is 80 hours as of this year, yes. Wow. That's just an amazing commitment from our company. Talking about being, you know, blessed to work for such an awesome organization. Cisco prioritizes us getting out there and spending our hours volunteering. So as a team, we're doing a, a food bank in January and, and Covenant House was huge uh, success. So thank you. And you can hear the passion in your voice when you're talking about it. It's, it's super important that we're bringing light to these organizations. So thank you for keeping that on our radar as a team. Um, I want to transition quickly back into, you know, business and something you touched on earlier, and then we'll wrap up. I know you mentioned, you know, being at Cisco, Jen, you worked cross-functionally, and that was one of your superpowers is, you know, not necessarily telling people what to do, but bringing a group of people together, kind of inspiring them and going in, you know, a direction. And I've heard people say this before about Cisco, you know, it, it's such a massive organization how do we get things done? How do we work cross-functionally? Do you have any tips for folks, even who aren't maybe at Cisco, who are just having difficulty working cross-functionally on the teams that they're on? I mean, do you have any tips or tricks around being more successful at it? It sounds like you've, you've done quite a bit of this, right, in your career. I have. I have. And um, I, think, I think that it is an art. It is a science, and I love that you called it my superpower because I'll take it. Um, I'll 100% take that compliment. Because you didn't even need me to say it. I promise. Yeah, that is, that is awesome. So, but what I found that works uh, because inevitably, when you come into a cross-functional group, 
everybody has an agenda. Everybody has a lens. Everybody has a perspective. Um, and they all want to share their, they all come at the project or they come at the initiative or they come at the discussion with that agenda, that perspective and that goal. Right. And um, what, what I find is that people don't always take the time to say, and well, let's just use Cisco for an example, right? Um, when I was working on as a service deals, we had finance, we had legal, we had different BUs. So that might be the, you know, the Meraki BU or the Catalyst BU or the, or the EMBU, I'm sorry, collaboration or security, right? Um, all together on a specific project plus services. Um, and so you had all of those different and then sales obviously was in all of that, all of those different viewpoints and all of those different wants. So legal, legal comes at this wanting this to be the most ironclad legal document ever. Financial, finance, they want it to be the most profitable solution ever. The customer, the customer wants it to be um, the, the, the solution that solves all of their problems. You know, each BU wants their technology embedded into the um, uh, solution so that, you know, it they get the most maximized sales out of it. Sales just wants the whole solution to work together seamlessly. Services wants to make sure that they have project management and consulting and then um, uh, day two services in there, you know, however it might be, or managed services, and they want it to be the most optimized uh, offering that they have. And so how do you bring all of those together to have a, a different view? And I think it, it, if you can start off any initiative whatsoever you're doing, understanding people's point of views um, and what is the goal up front and get to a level playing field that everybody can agree on on what that goal is right what is that goal where are we marching to what is our mantra what is our end point what is our north star what is the vision that we have and if we can get everybody to agree that that this vision is collectively good for all of us then it starts, it's, it starts to bring and, and melt, if you will, um, the barriers and the walls that everybody puts up that it has to be my way or no way, right? Because we're all working together now as one team. You're, you're, you're creating a team within a team. You're no longer coming just representing team A or B. You're now representing the team that you were put together on and you, you build that relationship. And so I think that if you can take the time to do that in a cross-functional group, you can take the time to say, okay, what do you want to get out of this? All right, what do you want to get out of it? What do you want to get out of it? And go through the group and make sure everybody understands, so everybody understands their point of view. Now, what is our collective vision? What are we marching towards as one team? And how are we going to all row the boat together in one direction? Um, because what I found is cross-functionally, you can get nothing done. You can go 100% into analysis paralysis. People are sometimes reluctant to share their point of view. They don't want to give you the knowledge that they have because they feel like if I have the knowledge, I'm the most powerful person in the room and I don't want to share that with you. Um, I want to be valued. But for me, honestly, sharing is power. Bringing everybody to the same playing field and say, okay, I'm going to tell you everything I know about this pro problem. And then someone else says that, man, we get to the resolution faster because we can just, we're all moving in the same direction. We're all rowing the boat at the same time. We're not rowing against each other. Um, and we take the time to be empathetic about someone else's point of view or their agenda so that we can solve everything, right? We're made, there may be people who walk out and say, okay, I didn't get my agenda done. I didn't get, my point of view wasn't, wasn't, uh, you know, what I wanted to get accomplished wasn't really accomplished, but for the greater good, we, we solved the problem, right? So, and I think that's the way you, that's what I've been successful doing in, in cross-functional groups is giving everybody a voice, making sure we understand their point of view, making sure we understand their agenda, and then creating that, that, single vision that we collectively all agree we need to get to right collective buy-in huge yeah i love how you simplify what i say sammy i feel like i, you know, I love it <laughs> i know i'm like your little scribe over here i'm taking well by the way i'm taking a ton of notes as we talk because these are all super helpful tips for me too selfishly as a leader but these are applicable to anyone 
anyone at any job, whatever you're doing. Um, so this is so insanely valuable. And this being our first episode of 2022, what a great way to kick off the new year with these tips and these tricks to make your meetings more successful, um, working better collectively as a team. So Jen, I just want to give you a huge shout out and thank you. I hope you had fun today. I did. I did. It's the best way to close down a Friday. I'm East Coast. It's 430. It's fantastic. Uh, and we're heading into the weekend, Sammy. So this is just awesome. Beautiful. TGIF. I love it. Well, Jen, thank you again for joining. I hope you come back again. Thank you also for being a huge fan of the Meraki Unbox podcast. Um, so to, to her point, download and listen to it when you're on walks, people. It's the best thing you could do for yourself. But on a personal note, I just want to say uh, thank you to all of our listeners. This episode marks the one-year mark that Simon allowed me to be a part of this with him and co-collaborate on the Meraki Unbox podcast, which has totally brought a whole new level of joy into the work I do every single day and why I love Cisco Meraki so much. So thank you again. Happy New Year, folks. Uh, we will be back in two weeks with a new episode. So hope everyone takes care and we will be back soon. Bye.